Hello. What? Okay, so we're somewhat behind, but luckily we have that exam day. Yeah, so we'll have a long seminar. We can um, read all Blake's Milton aloud. We won't, but we could. Um, so Nicole isn't coming, and Tafar and Meg aren't here yet. Okay, should we time it? We needn't. Um, all right, so uh, I th we're supposed to be, well, we're behind, but it's okay. Um, what we're going to do, I think, is look at one of the famous Lucy poems, um, probably the most famous and the greatest of them, which is the very short poem, Slumber Did My Spirit Seal. And then... Um, we really have to spend time on the Intimations Ode, which is the poem of the last 220 years. And um, so what we'll do, I think, is try to do Tintern Abbey relatively quickly, which there's no way to do it quickly, but nevertheless we should. Um, and then spend some time on the Intimations Ode, and this is a good preface to the 1805 Prelude which you will start reading over the weekend, right? Has anyone started it yet? Yeah, yeah I'm actually yeah. about to finish book one. All right, so what do you think? It's amazing. Okay, good. And I really, really like it. Good, what do you think? I agree, I really like it too. I think I read a chapter of this for Professor Cody's class last semester. Uh -huh. I really like it too. I just like the way that he like, describes nature a lot. Yeah. It sounds like really, you know, basic, but... Yeah. yeah. No, 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 that's poet um, of nature. So, yeah, the question what he thinks about nature is a difficult one, um, as it is in Blake as well. It's not as obvious as it seems at first um, what the answer to that question is. But he's certainly not against nature, um, <laughs> unlike some presidents I could mention. So, but uh, it's not clear that, that his relationship to nature is an ambivalent. You were nodding also, Olivia, are you liking it? Yeah, I, it's just like, you know, Okay, that's great. And Brian? Yeah, I, I, I never read it. I read it for the first time last summer. The whole thing? Yeah, it wow. totally like blew my mind. Um, okay, so well. So it's like, it seemed like an off film not to have like read. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm reading it again, I'm just reading it this morning, and also like the other day. Okay, well, that's terrific. Um, Meg, have you started reading um, The Prelude yet? Uh, a couple of lines of it, but I didn't expect to be here today, so. Oh, what happened? Uh, what games are most fun? I feel this absolute crap. Oh, here? Yeah. Um, I don't know what happened. Obviously, it's not like you're in, in New Jersey or something and just flew back. Why is it feel crap? Um, because it was frozen yesterday, so of course that it was fine, but it thawed. Oh. Okay, who are you supposed to play? Um, Eastern Nazarene. Oh. Uh, okay, so they're not that far away, right? Yeah, so it's supposed to be tomorrow. Okay. All right, well, let's look at A Slumber Did My Spirit Seal. Hello. Have you started reading The Prelude yet? The Prelude? No. Okay, well, over the weekend, right? I thought we were The first two books. No, no, no. It's, yeah, yeah, we're doing Tinder and Abbey and... 
on the intimation side. I, we were just chatting. Oh, okay. We were just chatting while waiting for the latecomers to come in. Are we supposed to have read the intimation though? Um, it, it, yes and no. It's okay. Um, we're going to go through it one by one. I read it before. Yeah, and we'll go through it line by line. But let's look at A Slumber Did My Spirit Seal, which is, so there's a set of poems that are called the Lucy poems, and it's partly that some of them actually mention Lucy by name, and partly that they are, some of them grouped together. So this one doesn't mention Lucy by name. Also, you should know that Lucy and Lucy Gray are not the same person. So who Lucy is, there's a lot of speculation and no answer. Um, Lucy is a figure whom the speaker of the Lucy poems is in love with and who dies. That's what we knew. That's what we know about her. And the speaker is thinking about how to talk about her death. So. There's uh, one of the amazing ones, the one just before Slumber to My Spirit Seal, which is called Song in the, the lyrical ballads, is um, usually called She Dwelt Among the Untrodden Ways. So she dwelt among the, the untrodden ways beside the springs of dove, a maid whom there were none to praise and very few to love. So she was not well known. She was... Um, obscure, not a person who was um, something that, not a person that an imagined readership would know. A lot of what happens in Elegy, I just want to have this a little bit as a background, a lot of what happens in Elegy is that a person is writing, is expressing a loss that other people are also feeling. But Lucy, who dwelt among the untrodden ways, is not a person who is known at all. She is a violet by a mossy stone, half hidden from the eye, fair as a star when only one is shining in the sky. So she is in a place where there are not a lot of others, and that contributes both to her wonderfulness or to, to a description of her wonderfulness, but also to her obscurity. They go together. She's not in the midst of a crowd. She lived unknown, and few could know when Lucy ceased to be. But she is in her grave, and oh, the difference to me. And that last line is pretty amazing. It's partly amazing because of its astonishing understatement. That is, that he's not describing this as, well, people didn't really know her, but when she died it was like my whole world was rocked or completely collapsed or my reasons for living um, were gone. It's that he doesn't have words for it. So this understatement is really something amazing that Wordsworth is doing. No other poet before Wordsworth would have described the power of loss in this, with this kind of understatement. It's, again, something that we might now feel is familiar. Uh, some of you will know that W.S. Merwin died last week. And he died last week? Yeah. Yeah, he, he died on the 15th. He died on Friday. 
and he's the one who had that poem called Elegy, which is the single line, who would I show it to? And that's a Wordsworthian kind of line. That is, it's a line where understatement is doing the work of hopelessness. That is, there's no reason to, there's no point, there's no hope to be found in the overstatement of passionate utterance, of passionate poetry. Or the, let's not say overstatement, the, the, the passion of, of really impassioned utterance. The idea frequently is that our emotional reactions to things are sort of substitutes for what is lost. That if you get really angry because something bad has happened, it's as though your anger could counter it. And if it can't counter it, at least it can fill in. You know, if you're, if you're late, you're really angry at someone on the highway because they're driving so slowly or, you're, or there's a traffic jam or whatever, it's as though your anger can balance the frustration that you feel for being late for whatever it is that you're late for much more so in terms of mourning, that if you weep over the death of someone, it's as though the weeping and the passion and the power of the weeping does some version of producing the passion that you feel for the dead person, brings that passion back, that the person who's dead, when they're there, you're in love with, and so love is present, and when they're not there, it's you do all the work of making love present. Their presence isn't what makes love present. It's your, your weeping that makes love present instead. And I think that's just a description of the psychology of mourning. It's, in fact, Freud's description of the psychology of mourning, that you are doing the, the your energy is going into producing what a relationship with the person when they're there ordinarily produces. It's as though usually there's a bridge or what there had been was a bridge between you and them and so you are supporting one side of the bridge and they're supporting the other side of the bridge and there's this connection, the bridge that um, connects you. And then they're gone and you have to hold the whole thing up from your end and there's no support on the other side because they're gone but there's still the bridge. And the energy that you put into holding it up is doing and substituting for them because they're now gone. And that idea of emotion as a kind of, I mean, it's a puzzle why, why people express emotion, why we even feel such strong emotion. And one psychological answer, one phenomenological answer, it's not the evolutionary answer, but it may be connected to it, but one psychological answer is that psychologically what we're doing is compensating for the thing that we're feeling an emotion because of. Whatever is causing the emotion, we are compensating against that cause. Or for that cause if it's a good emotion, but for negative emotions it's compensation against that cause. And so poems of loss tend to be very strongly stated. And if you remember the last line of the great poem of the Ode on the Death of Richard West, anyone remember it? 
and weep the more because I weep in vain. That is, that West is gone, Gray's lover is gone, the man that Gray loved is gone, and he weeps, and the weeping is in vain. The weeping does nothing. He can't bring him back. The weeping is in vain, and so he weeps the more because all he can do is weep. And what he means by that is it's too bad that the weeping is in vain, but it also means that I have to do all the work of, of feeling on behalf of someone who can't feel. I have to do all the work of mourning on behalf of someone who isn't there to share the mourning. If my mourning weren't in vain, if my weeping weren't in vain, then it would mean that it would stabilize, that he would come back. But I have to, I have to do it all, and the very fact that I have to do it all means that I'm weeping even more than I would otherwise weep. So it's a paradoxical, it's, it doesn't quite make logical sense, but it makes emotional sense, and it's a kind of paradoxical um, situation to be in. With Wordsworth, and then with someone like Merwin, when you have, who would I show it to, it's a kind of acknowledgement of the vanity of the emotion. That is, this elegy is going to be one line long, because the person who I would imagine or hope or delude myself into thinking I brought back to me, however flickeringly, there, if I could do that, then my elegy would be over the top. But I know that I can't. The loss is too great for me to think that any emotion that I can feel about that loss would, ha would be effective in any way. So what you could say is part of what we want from emotion is an idea that it's effective. If you slam the table because something bad has happened, slamming the table, at least for a second, it feels like you're doing something about it. Even if you know you're not, the emotional part of your brain doesn't know you're not. It feels like that moment of just exploding in rage is a moment where you're not helpless. The very fact that you are helpless makes you respond in a way that's a kind of an assertion that you're not helpless. And to completely internalize helplessness, that's what Merwin is doing when he says, who would I show it to? You know, what could be better? A situation to write a poem, an elegy. For John Milton writing Lycidas, which was an elegy for a, a, a classmate of his at Cambridge, it was like, I can now write an elegy. That's fantastic. I'm, uh, this can be my first great poem. And that's not, that's, the poem is substituting for the dead person. But the real elegy is one where the poem can't do that. And it's Wordsworth who invented that. I mean, there are ideas of that earlier on, that is, elegies frequently complain, as in Gray, that elegies can't do anything. What's the point of this elegy? This elegy won't bring you back. But then the elegy goes on for quite a while about how it won't bring the dead person back. And again, that's a way of thinking about, and therefore thinking with, 
and therefore in some way um, rematerializing, however briefly, in however dreamlike a way, the lost person. But here, in Wordsworth, you get this amazing understatement, the difference to me. So that's all he can say about it. And oh, the difference to me. There's nothing else to say. It is especially especially poignant, especially after like Petrarch and like these like long, you know, so many lines about the dead lover. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I really especially compared to that, it's very striking. Yeah, great. So uh Summer Did My Spirit Seal is somewhat similar. Uh someone wanna read it, Tafara? <laughs> Do you not have it up? It's Yes, I can. Well, my computer had locked during your talking. Oh. <laughs> All right, that'll teach me. Wait, what, what's the name? A slumber did my spirit seal. A slumber did my spirit seal. I have a Kindle edition, uh-huh. but I'm confused because it says volume one and volume two. Yeah, so those are Wordsworth publishes poems in two volumes later on. Oh, because I can't find anything in there that we're doing. <laughs> okay, so the prelude's not there. You should definitely find the 1805 prelude. Okay, okay, okay. And um, lyrical ballads you could also find online. Yeah. And that would have a slumber to my spirit seal. Okay, I have it up. Okay, go for it. A slumber did my spirit seal. I had no human fears. She seemed a thing that could not feel the touch of earthly years. No motion has she now, no force. She neither hears nor sees, rolled round in earth's deep diurnal course with rocks and stones and trees. Thank you. Uh, do people know what diurnal means? Daily? Yeah. So earth's diurnal course is uh, the earth um, rotating on its axis. Um, so it's diurnal course is just 24-hour rotation. So, okay, what happens in this poem? It reminds me of um, Edgar Allan Poe's poem about I forgot the name, but the last line is like this fever called living. Mm-hmm. It's done with a last, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think. Well, yeah, like just. Um, I think well, what it captures the astonishment of like how can someone who was here just be not animate anymore? Mm-hmm. And it's almost like this. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she was here and now she isn't. Yeah, so what happens between the first and the second stanza? She dies. She dies, yeah. She dies in that blank space um, between those two stanzas, two four line stanzas. So, what's happening in the first stanza? Is he depressed in the first one? I think that he's content and like that he feels like he's never gonna lose her and then like suddenly she dies and he doesn't oh. know what to do. Yeah. 
so what, is, what does he mean by slumber then? A slumber did my spirit seal. It's a metaphorical slumber. What's he asleep to? Oh, Sorry. He's asleep. Well, it's like death, yeah. So one way, it's a little bit of a hard poem to figure out the, the best chronology to think it through in because it's all happening at once. But you're right. That is that what you have in stanza one is something that looks like death, but not such, but, but death um, tempered, death moderated, not death but slumber. A slumber did my spirit seal. The word seal is a little bit strange um, because it's tombs that get sealed. And so there's an idea in the word seal well, what do you think it means literally? Why would he say a slumber did my spirit seal? It is quite a mysterious line. The grammar would be my spirit sealed a slumber. No, actually the other way around. My spirit was sealed by slumber. So why would slumber seal his spirit? Or maybe, um, like, just like the contentment when it's like you kind of take things for granted. Yeah. Yeah, like when, because death doesn't happen every day, mm -hmm. so it's not a reality we have to consider. So it's something, because her death seems very untimely, so yeah. it's like off, out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. like, so, like, the sleep, I think. Or, yeah, the slumber is like this contentment, this taking things for granted. Yeah, yeah, thoughtless contentment, taking things for granted, not seeing um, the precariousness of things. Yeah, Meg? Sort of related to that, I think, when I think of something that is sealed or I, you know, linked to, locked or protected, held in, whatever, so that it doesn't need to deal with what's going on externally, so this slumber is sort of, like, sleeping is a way to escape from dealing with yeah, and I think that's absolutely right, that there's a way in which it's a protection, which can also be a sealing off. That is, a slumber did my spirit seal. The first and most obvious reading, and, and truest, that is, everyone would agree with it, is that he was asleep to the reality of, of life and death that he was somehow insensitive or unaware or unable or, or, or just, just um, inattentive to what life is really like. So, and that was wrong. I was asleep. I shouldn't have been. Kant talks about how reading, just to take a similar moment, Kant talks about how when he was in his 50s, he read the philosophical works of David Hume, which, as he puts it, woke me from my dogmatic slumber. That is, up until then, he'd simply believed in Christian dogma. And it was reading Hume that woke him from his dogmatic slumber. And so that's a way of saying he'd been asleep at the wheel, that, the, that what was important to notice 
he hadn't noticed. So when you say to people, aren't you asleep to the fact that um, terrible things are happening in the world, it's a, slumber is a way of saying that you're turned away from reality. But in this case, it would also, so it means something like he's not, he's not worried, and he's not worried because he's not aware of the dangers of life, but seal is still, and seal is a protective word, but it's also almost a more intentional word, like he's avoiding thinking about the dangers of life. At any rate, a slumber did my spirit seal, first line, I had no human fears. What does that mean? Like anxiety. Yeah. Because I feel like, well, a big part of being human is being anxious. Yeah. Um, Way too big a part. Yeah, and I, I think, yeah, the adjective, like, human fears, has, like, um, almost like her love made him kind of godlike. Okay. In that, um, yeah, like, nothing could turn, it's like they were untouchable. And like even in like the second line, like she seemed the thing that could not feel the touch of earthly years. So she's like, she's out of time. Uh huh. She's a there are things separate from time and space. And yeah. Like eternal love. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I I wasn't aware of any of the dangers in life. Yeah. I think because it's specifically human fears, but like seems like the one. Thing that jumped to mind is like only humans obviously is like mortality. Yeah. Like like we talked about with Book of Death, like she's so afraid of her own death, but none none nice. except her. Yeah. So that's the same. Okay, good. Yeah. I ponder and I cannot ponder. Um, I had no human fears. Part of what's going on here, I guess it's it's if this were all a class on Wordsworth, it would be easier to make the case, but Wordsworth in a way is the most amazingly psychologically subtle poet in English. That is that what he's able to do with just a few words, it's really hard to overread Wordsworth. It's really hard to find stuff there that's actually there. I mean there there you can overread any poet. Um, but what happens is it's frequently the case that you will find more in a poem in a certain kind of lyric than the poet has put there because there's room for the thing that you're finding. And often what you're finding, you're finding because there's room for it, and therefore in a way it's legitimate. It's what the critic Harold Bloom calls a strong misreading. A strong misreading of a poem for Bloom is when you have a better reading of the poem than the poet has. That is, you are making the poem your own in a way because you are seeing what can legitimately be seen there even though there's a good reason to think that the poet didn't mean to put it there, that that's not what was on the poet's mind. And how you make these arguments and what counts as a strong misreading and so on there's a lot that you have to say to make, to make the idea work. But the basic idea is the idea that we've all had. I think everyone who um, 
likes rock music has had this experience. Um, the basic idea is when somehow something seems more your own or truer to your own experience than it could possibly be to the person who wrote the song or wrote the poem. You just feel that somehow it's more yours than theirs. And if you've ever had that experience, and I think, you know, everyone has had it with lines and songs, with riffs, um, if you've ever had that experience, that is uh, good and common and telling experience of what poetry is. It's something, another way of thinking about it is what actors can sometimes do with plays. That is, a really good actor can make a speech her own and can make the speech a much greater speech than the playwright writing the speech had made it. So how can an actor do that? Well, by finding the potentials in the speech that the playwright might not even have noticed in those potentials. And, but they're there. Those, poten those potentials are real. In Wordsworth, it's very rarely the case that you're going to find a real potential, a strong and powerful moment that he hasn't actually, that he doesn't know about, that he hasn't thought about, that he hasn't put there. And I think that that's really important to, to know when you're reading Wordsworth because it gives you a sense of more potential subtlety than you had been thinking at first. If you find some potentials that you hadn't noticed at first, and if you realize that Wordsworth knew they were there, then you're going to start looking for others. So what's going on here, I think, is that to have no human fears means something like no fear of death, but it also means something like um, no knowledge that a human being should have, that there's a way in which he is sealing himself off from humanity even as he is not feeling the risk, the human risk of death. And who he's sealing himself off from would include her. That is, the first two lines of this eight-line poem are first person, and then the last six lines are not. They're third person. So, a slumber did my spirit seal, I had no human fears. Why is it about him when the rest of the poem is, about, is going to be about her? So, are you going to say? Yeah, it's like he's, he's also, because he's not afraid, or because he's not thinking about He's not thinking about her, like you said, and therefore it's of no concern. Yeah. When really he should be concerned. Yeah. Yeah. Going to die. Yeah. Okay, so she seemed a thing that could not feel the touch of earthly years. So she does seem like something. Like something that he doesn't have to worry about. That she's there, that she's some kind of pure presence. What word jumps out at you in that third line? Why? He's calling her a thing. Yeah. And is he really calling her a thing? <laughs> I think he's calling her something other than human. I mean, if you just read just that third line, it's, she seemed a thing that could not feel. I mean, that's not... 
Yeah, if you don't do the enjambment. So what she couldn't feel is the touch of earthly years. Um, but if you simply have it as a line on its own, she seemed a thing that could not feel, that would um, definitely dehumanize her. Um, if you take thing in the much more everyday use of that word when applied to a person, give me an everyday example of calling a person a thing without it being insulting in any way. But you poor things, you can't think of any? <laughs> so that's, right? You've all heard thing used that way? Yes? yes. Um, yeah, it, it's a way, it, it's a kind of term of endearment. Doesn't David Bowie have this one? Does he? What is it? Pretty thing. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great song. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, or wild thing. Um... <laughs> where the wild things are. But yeah, so the word thing there can be a kind of term of endearment. And it basically, it's the opposite of existential anxiety. Um, when, you, when you use that kind of language, it's, it's a casual, everyday, life is pretty normal and predictable right now kind of language. So she seemed to think that could not feel the touch of earthly years sounds like something, it's, it sounds like a good way of ventriloquizing what she seemed to him like back then. That is that um, it was every day. It wasn't earthly years, it was just the every day. It, oh look, it's Lucy. Um, it's not here is a mortal human being who may die at any moment. It's just, oh yeah, there's Lucy. So, and he loves her. And it's every day, and there's no anxiety about it. Yeah. I was kind of feel like, well, one of his things was sort of hating emotion because it's like, I feel like he thought that what makes us human is emotion, mm -hmm. and in that emotion is like burdensome, in that we are subject. Yeah. and not the other way around. Like you can't just switch off your emotions and move on. Yeah, but for him, that's it's actually going to be as you'll see with, when we do the intimations out. It may actually go the other way. Yeah. Well, I was because in the wrong edition that I had, I I was reading a couple of, of poems and there was one about how I forgot, but the line was like the I. Cannot choose but to see. The eye cannot choose but see. Yeah. We cannot bid the ear be yeah. still. Yeah. And it's like almost you're just forced to be a subject of feeling. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, but it's also you're forced to absorb the outside world. And so the eye that can't choose except to see can't get away from reality. So it may not be feeling, it may be what floods feeling with its, with, with its obstinate existence. But, okay, so first two lines and the second two lines. A slumber did my spirit seal, I had no human fears. What did I think about her? That there was nothing to, she... There's nothing to fear about for her. Earthly years couldn't touch her. If I was asleep, 
if my spirit is sealed, how much do I feel? No, there's a way in which what you're getting here is the self-description in the first two lines is a description which is exactly fitting for what he thinks about her in the second two lines. In other words, I thought that nothing could affect her. The touch of earthly years couldn't touch her. She couldn't feel those, that touch. She was a thing. She was somehow insulated from the world. And so the first two lines are, you could summarize this way, I was completely insulated from the world because I thought she was completely insulated from the world. Right? Do you see that? A slumber did my, did my spirit seal. I had no human fears. She seemed someone sealed from the world who had nothing to fear. So that's maybe not that surprising because it's just a way of saying that I wasn't afraid on her behalf. I wasn't worried about her. And because she seemed someone you didn't have to worry about. So I wasn't worried because she seemed someone with no worries. Maybe that's a good paraphrase. I wasn't worried because she seemed someone who had no worries. And that would get you the parallelism between the two of them right there. So slumber did my spirit seal. I had no human fears. She seemed a thing that could not feel the touch of earthly years. If you were to put the whole thing in the first person, it would make perfect sense, right? A slumber did my spirit seal. I had no human fears. I seemed a thing that could not feel the touch of earthly years. That could, in fact, be the beginning of the intimations out. I wasn't worried about anything. I thought that I'd live forever. I had no human fears. I thought myself a thing that could not feel the touch of earthly years. The fact that it's applied to her rather than him shows that his concern, even though he's sealed off from the world, his concern is still other-directed. It's still directed towards her. But it's not concern. So it's not that he's concerned about himself. He's concerned about her. The problem is that he's not feeling concern. The issue is concern rather than who it would be about. Then she dies between the two stanzas. And we go from the past tense to the present. So a slumber did my spirit seal. Now it's no motion has she now no force. So that now we're going to see in the intimations ode as well. It is not now, he will say, as it hath been of yore. That's the first stanza of the intimations ode. It is not now as it hath been of yore. So no motion has she now, no force. She neither hears nor sees. So what does that parallel in the first stanza? A slumber, she's asleep. So definitely, it's like, 
I was asleep in a literal way, maybe, but now she's sleeping the sleep of death. Yeah? I think sort of <clears throat> spectral quality about her. It's like even when she was alive, she could not feel. Mm-hmm. But like now that she's dead, so it's even if like she's died, but even the way when she, even her corpse has this beautiful quality that it had in living. Yeah. Like there's like no almost like no difference in feeling. Right. Yeah, or the difference is really understated. Yeah. 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 Like, in the first end, it's like when she's alive, time doesn't affect her. But now that she's dead, she's constantly being affected by the turning of the earth. Uh Uh-huh. Which is, like, a weird inversion of what we normally think about. Yes. Good. Good. Exactly. So if you look at the, again, if you look at the parallels, or what I sometimes call the parallaxes, between the two stanzas. Do people know what parallax is, literally? Math majors? Parallax, no? It's just when, when you look at something, and then you close one eye, and then you yeah. the other eye, and it's like... Yeah, do you know why? Math. <laughs> <laughs> because math. <laughs> what were you going to say? I mean, it has to do with, like, you need two points to figure out what it is. It's, it has to do with trigonometry. Uh, do you guys know what a parsec is? What's a parsec? It's, I mean, it's an actual definition of it is a little iffy, but it's basically a measuring distance using angles yeah. instead of feet or meters. Or yeah, it, it's, 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 it's like 4.8 light years or something like that. Um, Star Wars, it's time. It, yeah, according to, according to Han Solo. They did try to fix it in the, new, in the newer ones. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know they, they they actually it's kind of a joke that in one of the newer ones they use it correctly. Um, it's also who shot first, which they fix as well. Um, so parsec is short for parallax second. It's an abbreviation for the, for the uh, two words parallax second. And what a parsec is is if you look at an astronomical object like tomorrow, which is the vernal equinox. And then you look at it again in six months on the autumnal equinox. That means that the Earth will be there. We're going to have reasons to do a little more astronomy in this class, but it would mean that the Earth is about 93 million miles from the Sun. If you look at something now and you look at it six months from now, we'll be about 186 million miles from where we are, right? Because we're here, here's the Sun, here's where we are now, 93 million miles. Six months from now, we'll be here, 93 million miles the other way. So there will be, it'll be like the base of a triangle, which is 186,000 miles long. If you look at a star and you measure the angle that we're looking at that star from right now, and we look at the angle um, that we have to um, point a laser pointer to or point a pointer to to look at the star. And then if we look at that star again in six months, because we won't be looking at it from here, but we'll be looking at it from here, we'll be looking at a different angle. And if the difference in angle is a single second, which is how, how, how far is a second in angular measure? 
Anyone know? Sorry, say it again? Isn't it the, the thing with the little dash sign? Yeah, it's two yeah. of them. Two yeah, of them. two of them. Oh, yeah. So a, so a circle is how many degrees? 360. A degree is how many minutes? Oh. And a minute is how many seconds? Yeah. So it's 60, so one second is one three, 3,600th of a degree. So there are 360 degrees around a circle. A minute is 160th of a degree. A second is 160th of a minute. So it's one 3,600th of a degree. Um, it's basically about... Um, sorry? Yeah. 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 So it's basically, if you were on the surface of the Earth, um, it is about 100 feet. So from here to um, Schiffman is about three arc seconds of the entire circle of the Earth. You'd be doing about three seconds of that arc if you walked from here to Schiffman. So it's a tiny amount. It is one-third of the way to Schiffman is one second of the circumference of the Earth. So if you're looking at a star that's really, really, really far away, um, and the angle is only one second of difference, that is, you've done 186 million miles, and that turns out to be only one second of arc around a circle that would be Earth to this distant object, then that object is a parsec away. So, why do you need to know this? Did Wordsworth know it? No. What? Well, it feels if you're already on digression, and I want to ask... But <laughs> I was about to come I, so back from my like digression. I shouldn't, I shouldn't ask this question. No, go ahead. Um, so, I, like, this is all new to me. <laughs> Parsec? Yeah, and um, even the minutes and seconds of a circle. Oh, really? Which okay. really delights me. So, um, <laughs> this all seems like it seems like a, the same structure of time, I think, in the 365 yeah, yeah. days in a year, yeah. and how that's circling around. Yeah, yeah. So, like, can you. So there's a temporal spatial... Well, the 365 seconds, is that's accidental. Mm -hmm. Or if it's not accidental, it would actually be better to say that um, 360 degrees for a circle was... That number was picked partly because they're roughly 360 days in a year. Mm -hmm. So... Okay. Um, but it's actually a terrible... I don't know, it's not good. Degrees aren't good. <laughs> you want radians? Yeah, because... <laughs> because it's 365 days, not 365. Yeah, I know. So it's I just know. confusing. Yeah, they were quite sure. They're not they were. Yeah, and they wanted to associate it with the moon, and there are all sorts of. So they did. They based how they broke down geometrically the circle on time. To or? some extent, yeah, mm -hmm. but it, it was all very confusing. Mm -hmm. And there, there's. It's also confusing if you think the sun is the center of the solar system versus if you think the Earth is, um, and. But it fits. It's starting from a blank slate. Is the problem that all of these other thoughts that yeah. they're trying to fit in, and it just kind of just throw it all over the place, start over and make it clean. So, but the um, it got them to reasonable approximations. Approximations were reasonable for back then, and you know, in fact, the ancient Greeks got their circumference of the Earth right within uh, about twenty percent which is pretty impressive that they were doing it just using trigonometry. And 
you know, they, they knew in like 300 BC what this, or 400 BC, what the circumference of the Earth was. With, um, and they were right within about 20%. They got it right to within about 20%. And they did it just looking at, at shadows and pillars, which is very impressive. And so there's a lot you can do with geometry, fun with geometry. So at any rate, the reason I bring it up here is that often when you're studying literature, you're asked to notice parallels between things. Look at the parallel between Edgar and Lear. They're both people whose family members disowned them and who are treated unfairly and so on. Or look at the parallel between Hector and Achilles. And you can ask yourself, why do all these writers always put parallels in? What are they doing that for? And the answer is there actually are no parallels. What there are are near parallels, which is what parallaxes are. And the point of a near parallel, as a couple of you were saying, is that it gives you depth perception. That is, it's that you get a slightly different, or a note, but a noticeably different angle on the same object. And the different angles bring out the differences as well as the similarities. The similarities are the background. The near parallel, or the similarities, are the background against which you can see the differences. And that's how we do have, that's how stereoscopic vision works. That is, that the way you know that, the way I know that this book is closer than Ariel is, is that I have to cross my eyes more to focus at a point on the book than I do to focus on Ariel. So it's, um, my muscles are telling me what angle my eyes are going, and the less I cross them, the farther away the object that I'm looking at is. And that's what astronomers then applied to looking at, at distant objects, was the same um, way of thinking. It's why people use binoculars rather than just telescopes, because you get depth perception with binoculars. So when you see near parallels in a work of literature, the idea is to see the difference that the similarity brings out, the difference to you or the difference to me that the similarity brings out. So here, and that's what Wordsworth is doing over and over. He's not thinking in those terms, but he's thinking that way, which is she is in her grave, and oh, the, but oh, the difference to me, and oh, the difference to me, is that for the world is almost unchanged by the death of Lucy. She was a violet by a mossy stone, half hidden from the eye. She was practically not different from what she was when she was dead. And yet, that very slight difference is, for me, the most enormous difference there is between life and death. So the understatement is essentially saying how much of a difference what looks like almost no difference can be and how impossible it is to bring out that difference, which is almost no difference, except to me. So here what you have is she goes from seeming a thing that can't feel the touch of earthly years to, you could say, being a thing that can't hear or see. So... She goes from seeming to being. 
She seemed a metaphorical thing that could not feel the touch of earthly years. Do years touch you? No, that's a metaphor. It's a, it's a dead metaphor. It's a metaphor we don't think twice about. It's, um, we, don't, we don't say, wait, how do years touch? That's too weird. We just say, yeah, um, the touch of something means the, the way it affects you. So she seemed a thing that could not feel the touch of earthly years. And if you take that line by itself, she seemed a thing that could not feel, you get what is a little bit worrisome about it, but it immediately gets absorbed into cliché. She seemed a thing that could not feel the touch of earthly years. You poor thing, and yet you haven't felt time's touch at all, so that's okay. Those are almost cliched ways of speaking. But now, the thing she seemed to be, she actually is. No motion has she now. No force. She neither hears nor sees. So that parallels, I have no human fears. She neither hears nor sees. Probably a slight echo of fears to hears is um, also reinforcing the parallel. No motion has she now, no force. She neither hears nor sees. Yeah. Actually, I kind of take back my comment on how okay. she's she kind of seems the same. Like I see like the the difference that the similarity brings out. But like, like after you said that, I definitely see like her movement from the world of metaphors, if you will, mm-hmm. to the world of reality. Yeah. And it's like it's weird how she's still the same. But I feel like it also parallels the beginning of the poem mm-hmm. when something is sealed yeah. and it's like she's sealed mm-hmm. in a grave now. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Her dead body is just being thrown out yeah. because the earth's rotation and yeah. Yeah. The word sealed, he's probably also thinking of Shakespeare's Sonnet 73, which is which would be highly relevant to people. That's that's um, that time of year that may be behold. So hence earthly years. Do people know the sonnet? That time of year that may be in me behold when yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon those boughs that shake against the cold, bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. So he says, Shakespeare says to the young man he's in love with, in me you can see an older man and it's autumn. That time of year that may me behold when yellow leaves are none or few do hang upon those boughs that shake against the cold. It's like his limbs are shaking. He's, he's a tree. His limbs are shaking. Yellow leaves do shake. None or few do hang upon those boughs that shake against the cold. Bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. And then the second stanza, In me thou seest the fading of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west, which by and by black night will take away death's second self, which seals up all in rest. So not only is it autumn in me, but it's twilight and you see the day fading 
sunset is fading, Black Knight will take it away, Black Knight, which is death's second self, a version of death, a moderated or mitigated version of death that seals up all in rest. So the idea of rest being a sealing up is Wordsworth is getting from Shakespeare. That's one place where the word, or maybe the place in literature that he's getting the word seal from, a slumber did my spirit seal. So here now there's death's first self. No motion has she now, no force. She neither hears nor sees. Rolled round. What is that picking up from in the first stanza? What is it contrasting with? Instead of she couldn't feel, now she's being rolled around. Okay, so she's, she's um, being rolled around, but what is it that earthly years might do to her, but it seems like she wouldn't feel? What could earthly years do? Touch. Touch, that's metaphorical. Years don't touch. What is, how, what is the passage of time actually doing? It's rolling her around. She's just being rolled in the rotation of the earth really powerful image if you think of it. Um, I think one of you said thrown around or tossed around. But it's literally that she's just rolling as the earth rolls. So rolled round, not touched, which you can now feel a little bit of the human and possibly the even the erotic idea of touching, but just rolled round. Because she is a thing. She seemed a thing in stanza one. She is only a thing in stanza two. It Years, makes, oh, sorry. Oh, I was like, it makes me think of Emily Dickinson's. Yeah. Safe in there. Alabaster oh, Chambers. Yeah. yeah. Like, was, oh, I just pulled it up now. And like the last, um, untouched by morning and untouched nice. by noon. Yeah. Sleep the meek members of the resurrection. And then, Grand go the years in the crescent above them, worlds scoop their arcs, and firmaments roll, diadems drop, and dirges surrender, soundless as dots on a disk of snow. Yeah. That's beautiful. It is. And she's almost certainly remembering this poem. She, you, you think so? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Dick, Dickinson had like three or four favorite poets, and Wordsworth, Wordsworth was one. Keats, George Herbert, Shakespeare. Those are those are her, the the people she's in dialogue with most. I have this weird thing where it's like, if I hear a poem, then like a million other poems. Yeah, good. Pop up. Yes. And it's like, what? Yeah. Or like a song. Yeah. Well, if you think when songwriters write songs, millions of songs are popping up in their head. When they read songs, millions of songs are popping up in their head. And when poets are writing poems, millions of other poems are popping up in their head. So, yeah, so notice then the difference is that um, she's seen the thing that could not feel the touch of earthly years. That's okay. That's human. But now, years don't touch. Years don't really, earthly years, in a sense, don't even really exist from the point of view of things on earth or of things on earth. What we're getting, so 
rolled round is the truth of which touch is the metaphorical softening. To feel the touch of earthly years is to be in a human relationship with time. To be rolled round is to be in a purely material relationship with Earth's diurnal course, not the course of years, but of, remember what diurnal means? Single day. There's also an element of being molded. Uh huh. Like a pebble. Yeah. In in or a clot of clay. Yeah, like rolled round until she's like smooth. Yeah, and just part of the background. Yeah. Yeah. With rocks and stones and trees. Yeah, and it's like time is the river. Mm-hmm. Then that. <laughs> well, just yeah. But you still have to think of the earth spinning. So rolling, you know, the way a wheel would roll. And she's helpless. She's part of the, the, the movement of the earth. It's purely material. So the great debate of, about this poem is does it end hopefully or not? That is that there are those um, lesser readers, less deep readers, not that I want to prejudice you one way or another in this debate, but there are those shallower readers who say, but it ends with trees. So life comes back. Rolled round in earth's diurnal course, grim. No motion as she now, grim. No force, grimmer. She neither hears nor sees, awful. Rolled round in earth's diurnal course, Terrible with rocks, oh no, and stones, oh no, oh, and trees. So that at the very last moment, we return to life. So, what do you think of that reading? Sold. <laughs> you were waiting for that, good. Good, so, so in the end, it's a happy poem, right? In the end, it turns out that it's all just part of the great cycle of life and that life comes back. Okay. Um, why is that the wrong reading? This is known as a biased question, leading, leading the classroom. Why, leading the witnesses, why is that wrong? Because I think it's a logical fallacy. Yeah. To think that because there's one living thing in the list of objects, then its meaning in some sense. It could be just a tree. Yeah, good. Let me, let me ask this question. Are you at all troubled by rocks and stones as a phrase? I mean, you use it a lot in the past, like in like, lyrical knowledge in general. Wait, say it again? He uses the phrase like rocks and stones just like a lot throughout lyrical knowledge. Does he? Where can you find yeah. it? Uh, the form. What's the what's the phrase? Uh, like rocks and stones. Um, it is overgrown with lichens at the very top. There's okay. Exactly two mentions in Miracle Palace. Well, okay. What are they? What are they? Uh, the one that we just read. Yes. And then, um, with a few sheep, with rocks and stones and kites that overhead are sailing in the sky. From that's from the prelude. It's from. Pastoral. From Michael? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, read it again. With a few. Uh, with a few sheep, with rocks and stones and kites that overhead are sailing in the 
Okay. Um, I got like rock or stone. Maybe it's a different version, but I have like rock or stone and um, the horn. So read it. Uh, like rock or stone is overgrown with like it's a very tough. Okay, so you have rock or stone. Yeah. Um, and you have rocks and stones. Um, okay, so the rock or stone is two ways of saying the same thing. Right, that's what he's doing in the form. Um, rocks and stones. Just pay attention to it here in, not in Michael, which is which is in some ways similar, in some ways a very different poem. But right here, um, if you were writing this poem or if you were editing this poem, what might you think or say? Get rid of one. Why? Yeah. Or you would want some other word. Like, okay, rolled round in her diurnal course with rocks and come up with something else besides stones and trees. You might say something like mud and rocks and trees or sticks and stones and trees. Right? Wouldn't you want three, three separate things? Once you have trees, as, which are different from rocks and stones... Why would you have rocks and stones together like that instead of coming up with three different things? There's not enough variety in that line. There is a variety in vowel sounds, which is nice. In, in, in vowel sounds, yes. Rocks and stones, stones trees, ah, oh, e. Yeah. Well, like on a meaning, I think it's like even if trees are, are alive biologically, they're living creatures, they're just as dense. Yeah. And I feel like it's, maybe it's over-reading, but if it's, like, with rocks and stones, there's an emphasis on, they're, like, lifeless. Yeah. And then, and trees, I feel it's like a, like, grouping them together, it's like, yeah, you may think that they are alive, or they may seem alive, but they're actually dead. Yeah, I think that's right. That is, that the category that trees belongs to is given to you by the first two elements of that category, which are rocks and stones. And rocks and stones, it's their very similarity that makes the line powerful. It's not a, it's not a lameness in the line that words where it somehow couldn't figure out a, enough of a way to diversify the nouns in the line. It's rocks and stones, well, what's the difference? Not much. And trees, that's also not much of a difference. I think that's what you're saying, and that's what I'm agreeing with. That once you have established the distance between two items in this list as being no distance at all with rocks and stones, and then and trees then might at first look like it's a greater distance, but you've already said the distances between items in this list are, are trivial. So it turns out that when she's dead, trees are dead too. Even living trees, even blossoming trees, even trees in springtime, they're all just part of Earth's diurnal course. We're no longer thinking in terms of years, which are long cycles in which we have winter, spring, summer, and fall, as James Taylor puts it, um, and you've got a friend. Um, but it's just, no, it's just day after day after day. What play by Shakespeare that you're not supposed to name in the theater, might he be thinking of? Yes. It's not a theater. It's okay. Yes. 
tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. That is, once you think of time as occurring in days rather than years, we all want to think of time as occurring in years, right? It's everyone, Gibbon says, that um, no one really worries about whether they're going to be dead in 15 years because that's a long time. And yeah, you might worry about it a little bit, but it's not, it's not like a, oh my God, worry. If you knew you were going to be dead in 15 years, you would be unhappy. But you just don't spend much time thinking about what, how things are going to be 15 years from now. But, and the idea of a year is you're thinking of your life in long periods. That is, if you're thinking about what's, what the years will bring, that means there are years, and that's great. And each year has this whole cycle where you go through um, everything. It's partly what Shakespeare means by saying that time of year thou mayest in me behold. That a year gets a whole lifetime in it. But then when he goes from that time of year thou mayest behold in me behold to in me thou seest the fading of such day, suddenly the year is reduced to a single day. And you no longer have that sense of a cycle and of things renewing. And instead, you just have this Macbeth-like iteration of tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, or of day, 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 or Earth's diurnal course. Yeah. On Macbeth, like, what do you think? Do you think there's a parallel between Lady Macbeth's uh, The Sleeping of the Dead are but as pictures? Nice. Eye of childhood, the fears, a painted devil, and yeah, this whole like, idea. Yeah, that's great. Like, is there like what she's saying? Like, you think she's <laughs> saying? <laughs> she's saying, "Don't be afraid of dead people." Right. Yeah, but like, in, in um, I don't know, like if the idea that she's touching on are similar, if the idea she's touching on are similar. Well, I think that, that if that's on Wordsworth's mind, mm -hmm. then, again, the idea would be something like we often think of death as slumber. And that's a nice way of thinking about death because those who sleep wake up. And slumber is usually a very gentle word and a good word and means something like we're taking a break and um, we can return to whatever it is that we want to return to when it's over. And a slumber did my spirit seal, it sounds like, okay, so he wasn't aware of something, but then, but it's not permanent, his unawareness of it. But then it becomes permanent, his awareness becomes permanent. So what he's unaware of is a certain kind of permanence, which is the diurnal permanence of rocks and stones and trees. Just nothing changes, it just rolls. Yeah. And what are we to make of that she has no motion, yet she's rolled around? Right. Yeah, so to have motion is to have voluntary motion. Um, um, it's probably, there is a moment in Shakespeare, but now I can't quite dredge it up. Um, yeah, it's in King Lear. I think that's how it goes in King Lear when Edgar 
goes to Gloucester at the bottom of the cliff. Let's just look. Um, King Lear. I think I'm making a bikini. <laughs> <laughs> what is it supposed to be? I had no idea what it was when I was starting. I was going with the flow, and now it looks like a bikini. So That's nice. Honor is free. Once it's springtime, everyone just starts knitting their bikinis up. Yeah. <laughs> no, it isn't. But what is it then? Um, five likes. Uh, oops. I think I can spell right. Is it the town in SpongeBob that's called Bikini Bottom? Oh, it's substance, not motion. Um, Oh, yeah, because someone stole yeah. someone else's Etsy bikini, yeah. or they were doing it on Etsy or something. So, the, no, 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 this, this woman, was, like, this fashion designer started making these crocheted bikinis and selling them for, like, ridiculously high-end designer prices, and then sued anybody who had any kind of bikini that looked even remotely similar whatsoever, whether or not there was any proof of, like, copyright stuff. Um, but then it turned out that she, like she sued like Victoria's Secret and, mom, and then it turned out that she originally stole the designs. Yeah. <laughs> it was like a really big thing. Um, okay, so here's Shakespeare. So here's another song of Shakespeare's that he's probably that he's probably thinking of. To me, so this is also to the young man. To me, fair friend, you never can be old, for as you were when first your eye I eyed, such seems your beauty still. Three winters cold have from the forest shook three summers pride. Three beauteous springs to yellow autumn turned. In process of the seasons have I seen three April perfumes and three hot Junes burned. I guess it would be three April, April perfumes in three hot Junies burned since first I saw you fresh, which yet are green. Ah, yet doth beauty like a dial hand steal from his figure and no pace perceived. So your sweet hue which methinks still doth stand, hath motion, and mine eye may be deceived. For fear of which, hear this, thou age unbred, ere you were born, was beauty's summer dead. So he's talking to us and saying, before you were born, this beautiful young man um, was already starting to lose his beauty. And because that's what time does. I first met you three years ago, he says. Now it's three years later, and it's slowly disappearing from you. But just notice that it's, it's the same idea of time. He seems a thing that cannot feel the touch of earthly years. Um, the, the beauty steals away like a clock hand. It moves unseen the way the hand of a clock moves unseen, and it slowly disappears. So probably there's um, a little bit of Sonnet 104, certainly Sonnet 73, but probably a little bit of Sonnet 104. But it's also that 
to have motion means to have to be able to move voluntarily. Not that she's not moved, it's that motion doesn't belong to her. It's not a capacity of her own. She's purely passive now. So, you know, you could say she has force too, because if you drop a rock, the rock has force when it hits the table. But it's not its own force. So, yeah, and it's a grim ending. Um, rolled round in Earth's diurnal course with rocks and stones and trees. So we have two minutes to do Tinter and Abbey and the Intimations of. What you should do is, well, definitely read the first two books of the Prelude, but read the Intimations Ode as well for Monday. Read Dejection and Ode, although we won't get to talk about it when we get back to Coleridge, we will. Um, Coleridge wrote Dejection and Ode after reading the Intimations Ode. And the crucial line, the Intimations Ode <coughs> begins with, and one version of the Dejection Ode begins, there was a time when every meadow, grove, and stream, the earth and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light. You should also read the invocation to book three of Paradise Lost, which is about 80 lines long, 90 lines long. So it's the first part of book three of Paradise Lost. And it ends where Milton asks the muse to inspire him so that he can see and tell of things invisible to mortal sight. But the phrase celestial light, which you will see at the beginning of the prelude, uh, I'm sorry, at the beginning of the Intimations Ode, um, uh, when the earth and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light, that phrase comes from Milton, where Milton also talks about um, so the celestial light in the beginning of book, in the invocation of the three paradise lost. So have a good weekend, and we'll do lots and lots of catching up on exam day, if not before. I know, but we did okay. We did okay. We did okay. We just spent an hour and a half on eight lines. Well, no, we spent the first 10 minutes on another 12 lines. It's okay. About your chapter? Yeah, because I've almost done the second. Oh, okay. Oh, your second chapter? Yeah. Okay. I, there's just a ton of stuff I'm supposed to be doing for other people. No, no, no. It's, not, it's, it's just, just I have to get in. There are various things that people have asked me to do that are time sensitive. Um, so as soon as I get a chance to do it, I'm really looking forward to it. It's, my, my, it's not time sensitive. Okay. Okay. No, but I am really looking forward to it. I think